Hey, and before you sit down, don't sit down just yet, because we need to squeeze in. And so if you have any seat available, just ask you to just squeeze in. We got poor Paul back there, can't find a seat. There's no room in the inn. And uh, so if you can squeeze in as tight as you can, that would be great. Make room. And then our ushers will help anyone who still needs a seat to find one. So I see two right over here and two right back there. One and one. There we go. All right. We want to make sure everyone is able to have a seat. And thank you for, again, your patience with us as we navigate just, uh, just the beauty of what God's doing here. Um, as I look around and see this full house, let me just encourage you. Um, Pastor Kyle referenced next weekend, our summit weekend, going back to that 8 o'clock service. And I know many of you have already set your alarms early for next weekend. Um, but also want to encourage you to be a part of that summit weekend. And I realize that that might be something that... Uh, you know, you're curious about what that is. You're not sure what the Summit Weekend is. You've never been uh, to our Summit before because this is joined with our family. Our faith family began attending here in the last year. Summit Weekend is the place where we sort of unite ourselves together in the ministry that God has given us as a church. And we do that through a number of gatherings for all of our ministry teams. Each and every one of our ministry teams will host a gathering, a meeting for you to kind of learn about those various ministries, how you can get engaged. And so one of the questions that I'm asked most often is how can I get connected to City Church? How can I find some relationships at City Church? Well, the, the, the strongest way for you to do that, let me just tell you, uh, it's going to be hard in, in this room. It's going to be hard as we shuffle in here and then shuffle out and move too quickly. But if you would engage in one of our service teams, begin to get connected with one of those teams, you're going to find a ministry leader that's going to be there with you most of those weeks, and you're going to begin to foster and build some relationships. So let me just encourage you again, be a part of the Summit weekend. Just so you know, um, this room, there's about 225 of you would be my estimate. At least that's what the fire marshal believes that we have in here. And so um, right now, we have 245 people as of this morning when I last checked registered for Summit. So that means only about half of our church, those who are attending our church, have registered to be a part of the Summit Weekend. And so I'm believing in faith that you're going to register right now. You're going to take out your phones. You're going to stop listening to me. I've given you grace for that. CityChurchMelissa.com. You're going to register to be a part of the Summit Weekend. And that number is going to miraculously grow to about 300 by the end of our time together this morning. And so the other piece of that that I want to highlight for you is Saturday evening. And I know sometimes there's conflicts and many of you have been waiting. You've kind of been asking, am I going to get invited to another party? Is there going to be something else that will be a little bit more exciting for me than going to church on on Saturday night. There's not. You didn't get that invitation. So register. Be a part of this, the dinner on Saturday night. All right. That is at local Yokel. Who loves barbecue? All right. Thank you. All right. There's, oh, man, that is a small number, honestly. I would have expected a lot higher. I know our health and kind of the vegan movement is growing, but um, anyhow, we love barbecue, and so, and there are going to be those options for those of you that need it, um, but we're going to be at the local Yokel, the Augustus, their gathering space down in downtown McKinney, um, a great dinner, and my friend Jonathan Dotson is going to bring a message just to encourage us as a church, both Saturday night and Sunday morning, he'll be with us. Those are two different messages, so don't think, well, I'm going to hear him on Sunday, that's going to be enough. I promise you. He's a great, great encourager, and, I, and, and if you've read his book, um, Gospel-Centered Discipleship, you'll, you'll understand why we've invited him to be with us this weekend, but be a part of that evening, Saturday night, um, along with all of the other gatherings that are happening throughout the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Again, you can get all those details at citychurchmelissa.com, register for the summit, and I'm going to look at the end, I'll, maybe I'll give you a report. Kyle will wave at me and give me a number of how many of you did that while we were preaching. Um, that's great. One other thing I wanted to share with you. 
um, just the miraculous movement of God. Last weekend, um, we shared that our brother Pat, one of our elders here, Pat Knight, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And we paused in our service to pray for him. He had an appointment on Monday um, with a surgeon and um, was asking for prayer that that surgeon would, one, uh, be the right surgeon, and two, have room in his calendar uh, to perform the surgery. Well, Pat went to that appointment on Monday, um, loved the surgeon, uh, felt great about it. Ha- he, he actually miraculously had room in his schedule. Um, but by the end of the day, by the end of the appointment, it was kind of unfound or found out that he uh, did not perform this surgery at a hospital that was in network for Pat's you know, insurance. We know how that can be complicating and can be a really challenging. And so um, we continue to pray. And uh, by Tuesday evening, that surgeon had found the opportunity to perform the surgery at a hospital that was in network for Pat. And he's going to get to have that surgery next week. And so, yes, praise God. I just want to encourage you, friends. I don't know what burdens you're carrying But I believe wholeheartedly in the power of prayer. And this testimony is one evidence of our church asking our Heavenly Father for help and him delivering above and beyond what we could have ever imagined. And so continue praying for Pat. Pray for that surgery that's going to happen next week. But um, if you have something in your life that you're struggling with, can I just encourage you to ask for prayer? Let us know how we can pray for you. Um, One of the gatherings that will happen next week is our care team led by Lane Garrett. And that's a place where we share those, those prayer needs and she communicates those out to the church so we can be in prayer for you. Um, God answers prayer. And we need to remember that and remind ourselves, and I'm thankful for the testimony that reminded me just how powerful our God is. Well, we are continuing in our study in the book of Acts. Um, if you're a guest with us, we've been making our way through this book. We're right uh, in the middle of Acts chapter 11. And so if you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, in just a few moments, I'm going to pick up in verse 19. But as I think about where um, we are looking and we are going to see the story of the church, again, continuing to flourish and grow, even in the face of persecution. And in fact, it's the persecution of the church what really led to the flourishing of the church. You know, I think about the story that I just shared of Pat battling cancer. And it grieves me, of course, that my brother, my friend, and any one of you I know that would battle sickness, would deal with something like that. But God has made a promise to us as believers. He says in Romans 8, 28, for all of those who love me, I will work all things for good for those who are called according to my purposes. He works all things for good. You know, it's not really hard. We shared this in men's Bible study this week. If you're not a part of men's Bible study, 6 a.m. Tuesday mornings, a great place to wake up early, guys. But we talked about this, that, you know, for God to work all things for good out of good, that's not hard. And really, God doesn't have to be all that involved for good things to result from good things, right? That's not where we need him to intervene. But where we see hard things, where we see the brokenness of the world, where we see evidence of the fall, it's the fall that has led to cancer, to illness, to relationship strife, to all these things, all of those things, where those things occur where the effects of the fall impact our lives and touch our lives through sickness, through pain, through suffering, through whatever it is. That is where we see our mighty God take those things. And even that, that we're meant for harm, God promises us he'll use them for our good. He did that as we're studying David's life in 2 Samuel. He's doing that in Pat's life even now. And as we look at Acts chapter 11, we're going to see the church that has been persecuted, that has been spread out all over the continent and how God is using that for good. God is using that to accomplish his will, his great purpose for the church. 
We've talked about this every week. I've reminded you of this text, Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8, all right? You'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And in Acts chapter 11, we see the ends of the earth reached for the gospel. We see God do that. And he's done that through persecution. Persecution, as I said, leads so often to the flourishing of the church. I'm thinking of the church in China, which has been persecuted and oppressed. You know, one of the early things that the Chinese communist government did when they took over is that they dispersed all of the Christians. They took the Christians and they were gathered in these local spaces together. They were obviously worshiping and, and having church and doing all that the Christian family did. Well, they thought, the government thought if we disperse them and we break them up, then that will stop them from doing what they do. God used that persecution for good as the church flourished across China. And now house churches exist all across the country of China in a place where it's illegal to proselytize, to share the gospel, to preach. It's illegal to gather where they've torn down crosses. We see the church flourishing and thriving in the midst of great persecution. So many of us, we have a wrong view of persecution. On one hand, we're looking for it everywhere. We're just trying to sign up for persecution any chance we get. See, that's, that's it. That's persecution. They, they hate me over here. They don't like me. They're doing this to me. They're doing that. Some of those things are true, but we're just going around looking for persecution. That's a wrong view of persecution. Others of us are trying to avoid it at all costs. Anything that we can do to protect ourselves, to guard ourselves against anything that might come against us for our faith or our, as, as, as what we believe in. Both of those things are not the proper view of persecution. As we consider and we look at the church here in Antioch here in just a few moments, we're going to see that the persecution again, is used by God to accomplish his purposes. And so the right view, the, the better understanding of this is to trust God in the midst of persecution, to trust him and to trust in his plan and to realize that he's never not at work. He's never stopped. He's never taken his hand off accomplishing what he intends to accomplish. Again, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit is still moving today so that we would be his witnesses and share of the hope of Christ. Acts 8.1, the converse of Acts 1.8 that I just shared was just on the screen before me, says this, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. If you've been a part of this study for a little while, you'll know that Acts 8.1 comes on the heels of Acts chapter 7, where at the end of chapter 7, Stephen preaches the gospel, the conviction of the Holy Spirit falls on those religious leaders, those Pharisees, and they stone him to death. And upon the persecution of Stephen and the persecution of the church for preaching the gospel, the church scatters. And ultimately, again, as we're going to see here at 11, it reaches the ends of the earth. Stephen wasn't looking for persecution. He didn't go out saying, let me try and find it. But he was willing to preach the gospel and to live for Christ above all else. He was willing to let the prayer of the song that we sang this morning, Christ be magnified in me. That was his life. Let Christ be magnified in me more than anything else. Stephen's persecution led to the scattering of the church led to the church being formed in Antioch that we're going to read about. 
and the gospel and the message of the gospel flourished. The early Christian author Tertullian said this, the blood of the martyrs, that's those who are killed for their faith, is the seed of the church. And it's true. Throughout history, where we have seen martyrdom, we've seen the church persecuted, God has done amazing, miraculous work. And so, as we consider what it means to live in the face of persecution and deal with those things as they come our way, yes, our culture is going to be continually more and more antagonistic against our faith. We're going to begin to face challenges and hardships more than anything that we're seeing right now. That's going to happen. How do we live our faith? How do we live that out? Well, Acts chapter 11, I believe, gives us some great instruction on how we can do that. If you're able, would you stand as I read from Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking, to no, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For the whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Holy Spirit, I thank you for your power at work to take what was meant for evil and the harm of the church, and you used it to build the church. Pray that we would be encouraged today as we strive to live for your glory, Jesus. Help us by the power of your spirit to see how we are to live in the face of a challenging culture, to live when it feels like the world might be coming against us. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Would you teach us now? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So as the text says, those that were scattered, this is picking up the story, Luke picking up the story, and it's of course many, many years later, it's believed that this is probably perhaps when Barnabas sent for Saul in Tarsus, it might have been 10 years after Saul's conversion. Saul's been preaching and doing all of these things, and so this is picking up the story of the church sometime in history a little bit later, but Luke says that that scattering that took place all the way back in Acts chapter 7 upon Stephen's persecution and all of that, that led to the church spreading to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And this is far away. It's up north of Jerusalem, all the way over into the area of Galatia. All right, it's a far distance that has come. The gospel has been spreading. Antioch, by the way, is believed as probably one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It's probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a port city, of course, on the Mediterranean Sea and therefore was a place of great commerce. It was also a Greek city. We see this as it references the Hellenists that were there. They worshiped pagan gods, though. They had all sorts of things that were counter to God. And there was this small remnant, though, of Jews, Christians, Jewish Christians, who had made their way 
to Antioch. Again, because of earlier persecution of the Jewish people, they had been dispersed. And so it says that as the persecution arose, that there were those who went and shared the gospel speaking, it says there in verse 19, speaking to no one except the Jews. But then there was this small group that went and they shared the gospel, it says, with the Hellenists. You remember the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. We saw them in the account of Stephen in Acts 7. We see them spread out, and now these are people who are, again, reached with the gospel as these brothers, some men of Cyprus and Cyrene. They go to Antioch, and they preach the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it look like for us to flourish in the face of persecution? How are we to live What are the things that we should do with our lives? Well, the first thing that this text teaches us is that we must preach the word. Preach the word. Not all the other things that might be available to us to talk about. There's plenty of things that can occupy our schedule and our time. But again, it says there in verse 19 that they preached the word. They preached and they told the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord moved through the preaching of the word. So think of this, I think of Paul's instructions to young Timothy in his letter to him in 2 Timothy. In two different places, he says he talks about how he is to live. If we're going to see flourishing in our lives and the church is going to flourish in the face of persecution, we've got to, as he says there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share in the suffering. Don't try to avoid it. Don't try to combat it. But just recognize that Jesus' promise to his disciples were, if they persecute me, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. You're not greater than your master. And so Paul, knowing this, as he's sending Timothy to preach the word in a place not in Antioch, but in another city, and he's, he's telling him, and it's another Greek city, it's another city that's going to persecute him for his faith. He says, suffer, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he tells him, and he warns him, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Don't get wrapped up in all the things of the world. Don't get wrapped up in those other pursuits, but be consumed with the work of Christ and share in those sufferings, press in to Jesus. And what does he tell him to do just a few chapters later in chapter four? You may know this text well. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, preach the word. He doesn't tell him how to argue his points. He doesn't tell you how to defend himself against persecution. He doesn't tell him of anything else. He says, preach the word of God. Tell them about Jesus. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready whenever the time comes. You should be ready to tell others about Jesus and to preach the word, to preach the gospel. Rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. One of the things that I would encourage you to do perhaps as a little bit of homework, as some study time this afternoon or this week. Look at those relationships that you have around you, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's within your family, whether it's friendships and schools that you're students, you're about to return to school and you're going to have all of these various relationships. Consider those relationships and think about how do I bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear in all of those relationships? How do I prepare myself to have a word for my friend that is facing whatever that might be? I know I'm going to go into work tomorrow morning and I'm going to face a friend or a coworker that is dealing with this challenge, a familial challenge, a, a professional challenge or whatever it is. How can I be prepared to tell that person the good news of Jesus Christ in the face of whatever it is that they're challenged with? Preach the word. 
Yes, that letter to Timothy is a pastoral epistle. And so I have a vocational calling to preach the word here this morning. But every single one of us has the opportunity over and over and over again, if we are open to it and look for it, to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That is not something that is reserved for those of us that preach vocationally. Brothers and sisters, tell the world about Jesus as there's challenges that come. Have a word to share the hope of Christ. And don't get tangled up in all of the other things that so many people get tangled up in. Here's another just sort of uh, exercise for you to do. Next time you're hanging out socially, you kind of go to lunch with all the, you know, guys, the ladies, or you're at work, you're kind of sitting around the water cooler tomorrow morning, you're kind of reframing Dirk's Hall of Fame speech, you're kind of talking about all that's been happening this weekend, getting ready for football games. Just, just kind of survey the conversation. Where is Christ in that conversation? Where is the hope of the gospel in that conversation? My guess is that more often than not, we spin our wheels, even Christians, brothers and sisters, talking about all sorts of stuff. And sometimes it's fun and those things are not evil. There's nothing wrong with just having a good time and enjoying yourself and building relationships. But if we're not bringing Jesus into the conversation, we're missing the opportunities that God has given us. Preach the word. If we're going to flourish in the face of challenging times, let us be a people who preach the word. He then describes, Luke describes what happens as the word is preached, the church is flourishing, the church grows. And in verse 22, it says that this report of the church traveled back to Jerusalem. And so the word came all the way from Antioch, again, far north on the Mediterranean Sea. It drifts down, it comes back to Jerusalem, they hear of it. And as they hear of it, they decide they're going to send Barnabas. Barnabas, by the way, this is the first time that as we've seen over and over again, the gospel goes out to all of these various places as they sort of get word back in Jerusalem, sort of at the mother church that these good things are happening, that God's been on the move and the gospel is spreading. They send the the apostles, not the epistles, those are letters, apostles, those are men. They send the apostles out, all right, to go see what God is doing and to come back and report and to share the good news with the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Look at what God is doing. Well, this time, this is the first time they don't send an apostle. They send Barnabas known as the son of encouragement. And they sent him because he was a Greek speaker. He had relationships. He could relate to the Hellenists. He could, he could relate to that church. And so there was a purpose in who they sent. And so they send him in the same way Stephen had gone. They sent Barnabas this time. And as it said of Stephen, it was also said of Barnabas that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And what does Barnabas tell the church? Look at what he says in verse 23. When he came... And saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He comes to the church and he sees the grace of God. If you want to understand a little bit why Pastor Kyle comes up Sunday mornings, I stand up and greet you and say how great it is to see you all. That's not because we're happy about seeing a lot of people. What we're rejoicing in is we are seeing the grace of God at work. We see the evidence of God moving in our midst. And for us, and it should be for all of us, it's why you endure all the hardships to be here on a Sunday morning. And I know we've talked about it week after week. There's some hardships in getting here. Thank you. But it's because we see the grace of God. If you're a guest with us, I hope That as the psalmist says that you are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, you're seeing the evidence of grace. That is what Barnabas saw in this church. 
It's what we're looking for. It's what, we, it's what encourages us. It's what gives us hope. In the face of persecution, the church flourishes when we see the grace of God at work. And we look for that. Barnabas was looking for those things. He was looking for evidence of God moving. Again, a little homework. Look around you this week. Look for evidence of God's grace. It'd be embarrassing for so many of you, and I don't have time, but I literally could go row by row by row, picking out names and faces and say, I see the evidence of God's grace in your life. I see the evidence of God's grace in your life. I see the evidence of God's grace in your life. And I could tell the stories that are connected to those. I wish I could tell all of them. I don't know all of you that well yet. That's why I'm gonna be down front, by the way. Remember this, y'all come forward, y'all say hi. You tell me about God's grace in your life. We rejoice, we pray together. It's a great thing. So that's what you do if you have never done that. But I see the evidence of God's grace. And it's a beautiful thing to see what God is doing. Well, as he sees this evidence, he reminds them, he says to them to remain steadfast. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was so glad, he was filled with joy, and he exhorted them, he challenged them, he pled with them. Exhorting is a strong word of saying, please do this. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Remain faithful. Jude tells us to contend for the faith that was once, and all, once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith that was given to us. Paul testifies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole text of 1 Corinthians 15 is him, his testimony that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a true event, that we have staked our lives on the right thing, that we have staked our lives to the fact that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, did die on a cross, was buried in a tomb for three days later, for three days, but three days later, he rose from the grave. That is what our faith is built on. It is built on the fact that death does not hold us. It has no hold on our lives. And Paul is saying that in 1 Corinthians 15, he's telling the church, let me tell you, our lives are not staked on something in vain. Our lives are staked on the truth that Jesus is alive. And in verse 58, based on that whole testimony at the end of this chapter, he says, therefore, because we know the resurrection is true, because we know that we cannot die if we are in Christ, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that you're in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Throughout the history of the church, even in the face of great persecution, there have been laborers who have labored and labored and labored and preached the gospel and shared the grace of Christ and done all that this text would instruct us to do. And they may have never seen even one convert, even one person come to faith. As we study human history even further, take a broader lens out, we see the remnants of the, their work. In their generation, in their lifetime, they might not have seen someone come to faith in Christ. They might not have seen the evidence of God's grace. But now we can look back even centuries later and we can see the church from those seeds, those early seeds. You probably have someone in your life like me that you've been praying for. You've been calling out to the Lord on their behalf, asking that the Lord would save them, would redeem them, would, would pull them out of the pit. You, you've been asking God and pleading with him. You've been sharing and been doing all the things that God has called you to do. Let this text be an encouragement to you. Remain faithful and steadfast. Your labor is not in vain. You might not be able to see it. We don't understand. We can't comprehend all that God is doing. But he is moving. And the instruction to Barnabas in the face, a church in the face of persecution that is flourishing is one that remains steadfast. 
Barnabas was the perfect person to come along this church and encourage them to remain faithful and steadfast to the Lord's calling on their life. Be immovable, it says, knowing that the Lord, or that the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. I just referenced the goat right after Jesus. That's Dirk Nowitzki. He was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame last night, and in his speech, I know most of you already watched this, but I just wanted to recount it for a few of you. In his speech, he said that the value that he held up the most in his life, and his career, was loyalty. Loyalty is something that we can understand from a human relationship standpoint, that we are loyal to one another, that we care about one another. That in, loyalty could be defined in some ways. I don't care what you do. I'm going to remain steadfast. I'm going to stay right here. But in a spiritual sense, there's a spiritual reality that could be called loyalty that is much greater than that. And that is that word steadfastness. We are steadfast because as Paul says, I know what my God has done. I'm staying right where he put me. I'm not going to move. I'm going to rest in his truth. I'm going to rest in his promises. That's what allows us to be immovable, to not drift to and from, but to be a people who are immovable and just continually and continually, faithfully and obediently and steadfastly in the face of all the challenges of life, continue to live out the life that God has called us to. If we're going to flourish as a church, we must preach the word. We must remain faithful. And then we see this calling that is an outworking of what's happening inwardly, which is a call to live generously. Look what it says in verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Luke is recounting essentially what he believed, what he saw happened. Historically, we can find this famine that took place, this real famine. And so the disciples in verse 29, the disciples, the church, determined that everyone, according to his ability, would send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And so they did. The church that flourishes lives generously. We see the evidence of God's work in our lives in the way we respond to the needs of others. When we see needs and we have the ability and the capacity, it's, again, it says, as they were able, they gave generously to the work and to the needs of the body. And they're flourishing. And the evidence of that, the way that the world sees that is through their generosity. These brothers and sisters were concerned for the well-being of the church. Those that were grieving they knew this, this was being, again, was foretold. Those that would be facing this famine and the challenges that would come as a result of this famine, they realized we have a responsibility to care about that. And we want to care about that. This wasn't under some sort of a compulsion, by the way. Do you notice? It says that they were just told of this and the disciples determined, every single one of them, not sort of pitting one another against one another, saying, oh, you want to do that, I don't want to do that. No, the disciples, every one, according to his ability to send relief, to the brothers. It's interesting to me that Luke would include this as part of his story 
of the church in Antioch. But it's also key to help us understand perhaps why Luke does, why God instructed Luke to record this and keep this in our Bibles. Do you notice what it said about the church in Antioch a few verses earlier? This is the first time that the church was referred to as Christians. Look back at verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples, the disciples were first called Christians. It's the first time that they're referred to as Christians. By the way, this referring to them as Christians is outsiders. The outsiders looked at their lives and they called them Christians. They called them Christ followers. The believers themselves, they most often refer to themselves as disciples, followers, Jesus people. That's kind of how they refer to themselves. But the outsiders, they referred to them as Christians. What this teaches us is that those that were not a part of the church, they saw something in these people that they set them apart. They said those people live their lives differently than the rest of the world. All these other people that we see worshiping the pagan gods, doing all the things of the world, these people are different and they were able to identify them and give them a title. These are Christians. These are people who follow Christ. I believe the evidence, one of the primary evidences of that was how they cared for one another, how they lived generously. Their lives were marked. And we know that Jesus over and over again, more than any other topic, talked about money being a sort of a lens or a, a view to the condition of the heart. And that as they lived generously, as they cared for the needs of others, that was evidence as to what they most cared about. This church... This early church cared about the witness of Christ. They cared about the fame of Jesus. And as a result, because of that, they lived generous lives. Generosity is a key indicator of what we believe in. Again, I turn to 2 Corinthians, backing up a few chapters to chapter 9. Paul says this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly. Again, look at what happened in Antioch. It wasn't reluctantly or under compulsion. Don't hear this as something from me, friends. I know some of you guests are like, man, I knew this church was going to talk to me about money. I saw that parking lot, how big of a disaster it was. <laughs> Stick around for a few weeks. Ask anybody that's been here. This isn't, we, we talk about money when the text tells us to talk about money. And we're in Acts chapter 11 right now, which talks about generosity. So that's why we're here but not under compulsion, not because some preacher made them feel bad about it. That's not the goal. No, for God loves a cheerful giver. And here's the good news. And God is able to make all grace abound so that having all sufficiently in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Here's what he says. God loves a cheerful giver. And guess what? God owns every single thing. And if he decides to use you to give to the generosity and do all those things, it's all his anyway. Isn't that a beautiful freeing thing? to realize it's all his anyway. Next hour, we're gonna have a baby come for dedication. I'm sorry, you can't stick around, there won't be room, but we'll have this beautiful baby come. (laughs) His parents are bringing him to be dedicated and we'll talk about his life has been entrusted to this mom and dad to steward, to point back to him, to steward for the kingdom. We, it's easy for us to see and think that as parents. Sometimes it's harder because we get a little bit too much ownership over to thinking that about the things that we possess. Every single thing in our lives is his 
entrusted to us to be used so that he would receive more glory on the earth. And this church in Antioch experienced that. They saw that. And notice as we close what happens in these things. You thought I was skipping over these verses, but I promise I was coming back. The church thrives in the face of these conditions. All these things, as they preach the word, as they remain faithful, as they live generously, this is what happens. Look at the end of verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and it says, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. Look at 24b, the end of 24, for he was a good man that's talking about Barnabas. And it says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. In spite of all of the conditions And I promise you, the church in Antioch faced harder and more challenging conditions than we're facing today, friends. It's not even comparison to the challenges, the persecution that they were experiencing. And the church was flourishing. The church wasn't just flourishing, they were thriving. The Lord was multiplying and adding to their number. And so in the turmoil of a culture that we are beginning to feel might be against us, let us remind ourselves this morning, let's be a people who preach the word, who remain steadfast, immovable, and faithful, and who live generous lives. I think we're doing that pretty well already. So let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters. That's why we see God moving here. But we need to be sometimes reminded. And some of you who are newer to our faith family, let this just be sort of fanning the flame in your lives to let these markers mark your life. Worship team is gonna lead us in a song as we respond, as we consider this calling on our lives. It's called Singing in the Victory. And the chorus is this idea that, that in spite of all that we see in our lives, we're singing in the victory. And let me, let me just tell you, I know every time I sing this song, my heart goes to those of you, those of us who are facing some probably really hard things, some really challenging things. There's something waiting for you this afternoon, tomorrow morning, whatever it might be. And then we're singing about this victory and you're like, I don't really experience much victory. (laughs) I don't know where that victory is. Well, let this song, let this text be a reminder. What we're singing of is not our current circumstances. We're singing of the hope of the gospel that says, in spite of our current circumstances, in spite of all that we can see, we know the end of the story. We know Revelation chapter 21. If you don't know that text, that's another piece of homework. I've given you a lot of homework today. I'm I'm sorry. We're starting school next week, so I'm just in the vibe. Go read Revelation 21. That's the end of the story. Let us be a people who live with our hearts and our minds and our eyes on the circumstances, that reality, even today. That's what will give us the strength, the courage to preach the word, to remain immovable people anchored to God's word and to give our lives away. Yes, that is money. It's other things as well. It's opening up your home. It's your resources. It's your time. Give your lives away for the sake of the kingdom. He's worth it. Let's stand. Let's sing. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m., and we look forward to meeting you there soon. City Church Melissa, 
for the glory of God, the good of the city, and the hope of the world. Oh, oh you say.